we've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Tap into your most original thinking. Organize your ideas. And create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. We travel around the world talking to creative practitioners of all kinds about how they get inspired, how they organize the work, and most of all, how they gain the confidence and the connections to launch the work out into the world. I'm so pleased today to have as my guest, Grammy-nominated author, Daniel Wolf. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks. I wish I knew what creativity was, but maybe you'll teach me. <laughs> Your productivity, the, the work that comes out is both creative and you've obviously got a lot of productivity. Listeners, Daniel has an impressive body of work. He's published so many books uh, of award-winning nonfiction and a lot of it based on music and music history, uh, like You Send Me, a biography of Sam Cooke. And maybe we'll start there, Daniel. That's how the Grammy nomination came about. I think a lot of people perked up when they heard an author was nominated for a Grammy. They put out a box set of Sam Cooke's gospel reportings back when he didn't have an E on the end of his name. It was mm. the, the E came with rock and roll. And I wrote the liner notes for that, and it got nominated for a Grammy, which was a pleasure. Fantastic. I think we're all picturing now the liner notes, opening the album, pulling out the paper sleeve, opening the CD, that little booklet was in there. I, I miss those. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what people hold in their hands now when they listen to music. Yes. The streaming doesn't have that same effect if you can't look at the cover while you're uh, listening, right? Uh, with shows were old timers, Mark. Daniel and I are talking today. We're going to focus on his work with Dave Marsh. You worked with Rock and Rap Confidential a few years back and appeared on a, a lot of his serious radio shows and co-written a lot of other work. And now you're an editor on his new book, Kick Out the Jams. And I love the subtitle, Jabs, Barbs, Tributes, and Rallying Cries from 35 Years of Music Writing. It's just out now from Simon & Schuster. So Daniel, this work, 35 years of reviews. It's packed. It's organized a bit by the decades. A lot of artists. And we were laughing a moment ago about the uh, extensive index. There's so many musicians mentioned in this. But tell us about how this thing is organized and what was the genesis of creating an anthology of all this writing? I was talking to Dave and we often talked about book ideas and he has a million of them. And I said, this is all well and good, Mr. Marsh. We had been friends for 40 years by this time. This is all well and good, but what about all that writing you've done, which nobody much has seen? Mm -hmm. um, what happened to Dave? Dave, as you noticed from reading a little, is a political writer. Uh, and he had a hard time getting his writing into mainstream publications. This is after working for Rolling Stone and helping to found Cream, but he wanted to talk about censorship and how Mrs. Al Gore was trying to keep the music down. And there weren't a lot of publications that wanted to hear about this. So he started his own, which at the beginning was a newsletter called Rock and Roll Confidential. 
that as the music changed, turned into rock and rap confidential, he'd written extensively for this. I was part of the staff. I was one of the writers. Uh, but unless you subscribe to the newsletter, you never saw this. And I thought it was fascinating, as you say, a chronological history of pop music from about 1985 through 2015 or something, and that people ought to be able to have access to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, Dave, can't we put this together in a book? And he said, sure, as long as I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, so my co-editor, Danny Alexander, and I took it and ran, and Simon & Schuster was good enough to publish it. As you say, the historical context here, certainly by 1985, we're catching up. Rock music is well-established, of course, but also rock criticism and the reading and writing about the music is a little more developed. But you can see through this anthology that even the tone and the voice, Dave stays consistently honest. Very, very, perhaps to his own punishment, but yes, very honest. And he, he challenges sometimes this perception of what rock is and its audiences. Did you see a thread of that as, as the editor, as you were looking across this work? How did you see that arc? You know, Dave St. Augustine had a vision. And the vision was mid-60s rock and roll, and that it was going to cross class and racial boundaries and be a music that everyone could share. And to a degree, he was right. But as Woodstock and Altamont and all the other things started happening and corporate influence, this vision started to cloud. And he, I think, if you look at this book, he is consistently saying, wait, we promised one thing for this music and we're delivering another one and keeps trying to reconcile that. It's true whether he's writing about Kurt Cobain or Bobby Blue Bland. Mm -hmm. you know, he, he's got this very high standard of what it ought to be. And uh, as you say, he's then honest about when people reach that standard and when they don't. Yes. But at least I felt in reading certain chapters, it was not this, they don't make this kind of great music like they used to. It was more than just a, let's go back to the roots. It was a true analysis of the music and the artists. And he loved, he always loved contemporary music. He still loves contemporary music. It's not, oh, it never got any better than fill in right. the blank, right. whoever your favorite is. It, it was, as you point out, him going, okay, but we've got this ideal of what it ought to be, which is, was a communal ideal, that we were all in it together, and it was more democratic than it was capitalistic, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he kept going, yeah, but then why are we... He hated the idea of we are the world, this idea that rock was there to save you. No, we were all in it. We had to save ourselves. We were all in this. Um, so he kept applying that, no, no matter the music. Just as you mentioned with the title of the newsletter, Rock and Roll Confidential, merging, evolving into rock and rap, I, I was pleasantly surprised, let me say this, at the breadth of the genres that are covered in this book. How would you apply what you just described about the music business to all these genres? Was that an evolving, I guess, picture that Dave and you guys were looking at? Yeah. Dave once said to me, people criticize me. A friend, I think, had criticized him 
for talking about race as much as he did. And Dave's reply was, that's the story. Hmm. As a journalist, that's the story. Whether it's Elvis borrowing black idioms to go forward or Bruce Springsteen wanting to do a tribute album about soul music, there is an interplay there which Dave thought, again, at its greatest moment, rock and roll crossed those borders and it all came together. I think for him, one example was Sly and the Family Stone, which appealed to black people and white people and anybody else who could shake their butt. Um, and, and that was the hope. That was like a political hope for Dave, still is. That sort of thing could happen and music was a vehicle to get there. As you're saying this, you're giving me a light bulb moment. Everyone was up in arms. LL Cool J is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How can this be? He's not rock and roll, but you're making it full circle that Elvis was borrowing from that music. Sam Cooke was rock and roll. I just saw a little Richard special. These were the roots of rock and roll, and yet it's maybe coming full circle. Yeah, and part of what happened and is still happening is to market it, you said, this music is called country, and this one is called rhythm and blues, and this one is called gospel. And in fact, my experience has been, and I know it's true of Dave, that if you talk to the musicians, Ray Charles listened to country music and cut country western albums. A lot of white Rod Stewart listened to Sam Cooke and gospel music. So that cross-fertilization was not only happening all the time, but this book tries to point out that it was essential to the music. And we've been talking about Dave and the the bird's eye view he had in looking at the development of the music. Did you ever get a sense that it was working the other way, that Dave and his criticism was having an impact on the artists and on the music? Oh, yeah, that's a can of worms. Sure. <laughs> sure, I think that there, there are a bunch of instances in the book. The one I think of is he wrote a criticism of Bono of U2, mm -hmm. where he said this red platform that Bono is doing to save Africa, in his opinion, was full of it. That this was this, who, what was this white guy from Ireland doing to save Africa? What did he know about Africa? And why was he dealing with the highest corporate muckamucks to try to accomplish that? And I think he thought it was less than straightforward. And he ran into Bono somewhere who had read it and said, Dave, we got to have a debate. We got to talk this through. And Dave said, just tell me when I'd be delighted to talk this through. And then he had a serious, Dave had a serious radio show at the time, told his producer, this is about to happen. And then Bono's people came back and said, maybe we won't debate it. <laughs> but he we'll, certainly, just, we'll just let it sit. He certainly felt that, and he knew that people were listening, and he had no compulsion, still doesn't, about being friends with musicians. I mean, it wasn't like he was an outside objective observer. Again, this communal notion of the music meant that you could sit down and talk to Dion, who is a close friend of Dave's, or Patty Griffin, or the, the list is very long, and it's a back and forth. And he, I think he felt that way when he was writing and when he just called him up on the telephone. It's interesting. You always picture these critics. It's what are you going to do when you run into these people at, at a cocktail party or on the street? What are you going to say? 
but it sounds like everybody knew that was his role. Yeah, he, he was a journalist, is a journalist, and music is his beat. So if your beat were, I don't know, British politics, it would be all right to talk to British politicians. Yes. His beat was music, and so it was all right to talk to musicians. That how That's how he got his information, and that's how he got inside the music. Let's turn the page a little bit, uh, Daniel, to talk about the evolving landscape, I would call it, of music criticism in the digital age when everyone's a critic and the criticism is relatively instant and you don't know the credibility of the uh, the critic, but everybody's got an opinion. Uh, your question is, what do I think? Well, of that? well yeah, what do you think of that? <laughs> I think it's fine. I think the more people commenting on it, the better. It shouldn't be the way theater is, where whatever the New York Times critic says makes or breaks a Broadway show. And for a little while, there was, you know, Robert Criscow, Dave Marsh, Real Marcus, Lester Bangs. There was a kind of clutch of white men who were doing most of the writing about music. Now, I think it's much wider open and much more interesting. And is that... I guess, yes. And does that mean, in other words, somebody can say they like something or they don't like something. I guess to to really be the beyond the criticism, if I use the capital C critic word, that you're really analyzing, that, that does it require some sort of knowledge other than just it's got a nice beat and it's easy to dance to? Oh, yeah. It's totally, although Dick Clark did pretty well with just he that. He did. He did. Um, <laughs> I give it a 67. <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. I think it's like reading anything else where you go, do I believe this author? Have, have they proved that they're legitimate and do they have the background on it? And one of the things that keeps coming up and kick out the jams, this new book, is that Dave wants to go back into the history in order to explain how the music got where it was. And he had, a, he had an enormous picture of that so that the blues singer Robert Johnson clearly has something to do with the Rolling Stones, and he wants to make that connection and see what that means. And that's part of, for me anyway, when I read criticism, I go, oh, this person's done that homework. They may not be totally full of it. They may actually have something to say. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing up a, a point I was going to ask you about in organizing the book. Uh, first of all, listeners, I'm talking with Daniel Wolf. He's one of the editors of Dave Marsh's new book, Kick Out the Jams. It's 35 years. How did you lay this work out? As I think about an editor, you probably had at least three times more that you could have, would have, should have included. How did the actual process work for you? Danny Alexander was an enormous help on this because he seems to know everything Dave Marsh ever wrote, which is very <laughs> useful to have. I can't claim that. We started making rules to try to get the thing to fit. So Dave put out a book called Fortunate Son in, shall we say, 1984, which was collected essays up until then. Mm -hmm. That was maybe 10 or 15 years worth. So we decided, OK, nothing before that, because he already had a chance to put that into collected thing. He had he wrote 22 books so far. And we weren't going to take anything from the books because you can find that somewhere else with any luck. He wrote liner notes. We ruled those out for no reason except that it was just too much to think about. So then we looked at all the stuff he had published in various magazines and websites and that sort of thing. 
I just tried to narrow it down. And yes, you're right. There was much more than we could fit in the book. A lot like you talked about Sam Cooke's box set. Were there any hidden gems? You said, this is a goodie that no one's probably seen or read before. I think a lot of it no one's seen or read before. Like I said, because Rock and Rap Confidential didn't reach that many people. It was a mm-hmm. kind of home newsletter. There's a, There was a once-a-year online chat among music lovers and critics called uh, Do Ron Ron, which you had to be invited to. And one of the last pieces in the book is taken from that. And I can assure you, unless you were online with the other people, nobody has read that before. And it's a kind of statement of purpose for Dave. It's a kind of manifesto. So I, I remember thinking, this is very cool to be able to get this in. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about some of your other work, uh, Daniel. We, we've talked about the biography of Sam Cooke. There, there's also a terrific book, Grown Up Anger, and how you've connected these mysteries of Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and a little-known Calumet Massacre of 1913. There's a thread that not many people are going to know. Yeah, um, I I explain it some in the book, but I'll do it quickly, which is um, I discovered Bob Dylan somewhere in the mid-60s and thought, I need to own everything he has and try to figure out who he is. And on the first album he ever put out, he only had, I think, two songs that he wrote on it, The Arrest Recovers. And one of them was Song to Woody, which was a song to Woody Guthrie. I went, oh, if Bob Dylan liked Woody Guthrie, I probably should check out Woody Guthrie. I was fairly young and naive at the time. And I went looking for Woody Guthrie. And back in the day, as you went through record bins to find mm-hmm. music, I was going to say, you're not Googling him. No, you're not Googling it. And I went through my record bin and I found a Woody, uh, no, I found an Arlo Guthrie album where he covered his father's, one of his father's songs called 1913 Massacre. And when I played it, it had the same tune as Dylan's song to Woody. And I went, wait a second, this is a clue. There is some connection going on here. What did these two men see that brought them together and that made this music I love? And so I simultaneously researched Dylan Guthrie and the actual event in Michigan that why it would inspire both these men. No, I'm just saying it's a complicated explanation, but that's how it happened. Yes. And I think the idea of anger, or at least protest songs, uh, does come through in some of these anthologies. Uh, What what do you think the role of music in our uh, social issues, social justice, how has that evolved from your point of view? I think protest songs was always a kind of weird category. It's like we were talking about earlier. This is country. This is rock and roll. This is <laughs> right. protest. This isn't. Sly and the Family Stones stand. I consider a protest song. If by protest we mean they see something in the world they care passionately about and want to make a statement about it, that can be applied to a whole lot of songs. And I think as a category, it tended to limit you to eve of destruction or some old song <laughs> was very narrowly focused i think protest music is going all the time now kendrick lamar the hip-hop artist i think writes protest music and or pop music and or hip-hop however you want to define it but it's music that says wait a second here's the world i'm living in is it the way i want it how do i talk about this this is my passion. Mm-hmm. 
Daniel, I'd love to cover off on some issue, not, some opportunities for our listeners sure. when they think about other collaborations. You've worked with the musicians, choreographers, sculptors, scientists. You've worked with them all. What This idea of collaboration, often we have this image of a single lone creator sitting in the basement working on their craft, but nothing really happens in creativity until you team up with other people. At least that's what I've seen and experienced. What are your kind of views on collaboration and how do you approach it? First of all, I think you can collaborate with Emily Dickinson. If if the poetry affects you enough, you're in fact in a dialogue with mm -hmm. her. I like that. Even if you're alone in your basement with Emily, you're collaborating. <laughs> My experience with collaboration has always been fun. Part of it has been to get out of the basement, but also it, it, it's another mind and another set of emotions that bounce, you can bounce off. And it pushes my writing in directions I'd never get to on my own. I think that for me, the key to collaboration is to give up authorship in a way and say, okay, we'll change this because it doesn't work here. Even though I think that's the best part of the writing, it's not working with you. And so we'll go on. It, I don't think it's much different from a marriage or a friendship. You're trying to figure out how to get along. And again, to go back to Dave for a minute and kick out the jams, that's what he thought rock and roll was. And that's what he thinks it is, is a collaborative medium. You're in the band. And if you aren't, even if you're a solo artist, it's you and the audience. So there's a collaboration going on all the time, I think. Mm -hmm. And he was giving you and Danny a lot of control over the development of the book. Oh, yeah. When you written something, done something, there's part of you never wants to see it again. <laughs> and I think that was part of what Dave was saying was, no, I want to talk about what I'm going to do next. You guys, go ahead. If you think this old stuff is interesting, pull it together. But yeah. And the he gave us a lot of leeway, but he had also worked so hard on this writing at the time that I think he could rest assured that there wasn't going to be anything bad in it. He wasn't ashamed <laughs> of any of it. He likes some of it better than others, but as he says in the book, but, you know, that's always going to be true. Sure, sure. Yeah. Fantastic. I've been talking with Daniel Wolf. He's an editor of the new book by Jane, James, Dave Marsh, called Kick Out the Jams. Daniel, if you could, leave our listeners with some inspiration, at least I'll call it, from your experience. Somebody out there is working on their first work, and they need that extra push a, maybe to finish the work, but B, oftentimes it's to hit the send button. It's to hit publish. It's to hit record. Let's get the work out. What can you tell us? Oh, I think my first advice would be it's not as important as you think it is. <laughs> it's great that you're doing it. Hopefully the song will be brilliant, but you'll write another song after it. So I wouldn't get too crazy about hitting, as you say, the send button because there will be more. And we are small fish in a big ocean. And there's a danger of self-importance, I think, when you're, as you say, in the basement, that is, is worth avoiding. And again, collaboration is something that does that. Um, it makes you not feel quite so self-important. And again, rock and roll, one of its great contributions to our lives is that it essentially said, 
we can make fun of this. This is going to be funny and sexy and something altogether different. And I think that's a great impulse. Wonderful. Thanks for that encouragement. Uh, and, and it's almost reverse encouragement. Don't take yourself so seriously here. Get the work out. <laughs> I love that. Thanks for the conversation, Daniel. I really enjoyed talking with you. I'll put all your uh, contact information, of course, links to the book. It's Kick Out the Jams, Jibes, Barbs, Tributes, and Rallying Cries from 35 Years of Music Writing by Dave Marsh, just out from Simon & Schuster. Daniel, thanks again for being on the show. It was great. Thank you very much for having me. And can't wait to see the next uh, iteration of your work. I'll try. We'll be on the lookout. Okay, thanks. <laughs> All right. And listeners, come back again next time. We'll continue our creative journeys around the world, talking to creative practitioners about how they get inspired, how they organize their ideas, and as we've been talking about, gaining the confidence and the connections to get your work out into the world. Until next time, I'm Mark Stenson, and we'll be unlocking your world of creativity. Bye for now. Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliQ Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.Love. If you like this podcast, here's another show that you'll like from BSB Media. The Patients Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey. It features interviews with healthcare leaders, patient advocates, medical providers, and researchers. Presented by 83 Bar. Look for The Patients Speak on your favorite podcast app.